Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie, it's me, Jamie. Do not forget to buy lentils, or the lentil soup you're making for dinner will be sorely lacking. By the way, Mrs. Calloway says thanks for helping her bundle home and auto. She appreciates the extra savings, even though you kept using the word apropos incorrectly. But the main thing is do not forget to buy, uh, what was it? Something apropos, the lentil soup. Sorry, I'll call you back. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. You are Locked On the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. It is Locked On NBA. We'll check in on the Rockets, the Raptors' big moves, and the Celtics' Eastern Conference changing moves on today's edition of Locked On NBA. I'm David Locke, host of Locked On NBA, founder of the Locked On Podcast Network. Our guests today are Ben DeBose, Locked On Rockets, Sean Woodley, Locked On Raptors, and John Corrales, part of the reigning Jays that host Locked On Celtics. The show is brought to you by SeatGeek. SeatGeek has done a wonderful job for the Locked On Podcast Network, and now we'll do the same for you with the promo code L-O-N-B-A. You will get $20 back on your first SeatGeek purchase. Why do you want to use SeatGeek? Because they compile all of the tickets from all around the area to the event that you want to go to. Then they give every ticket a ticket score. So you can look and see which tickets are the best deal. And finally, it's guaranteed and secure for you. So right now, go on your phone, download the SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab, enter in the promo code L-O-N-B-A, and you've got yourself a $20 rebate back on your first purchase from SeatGeek. Download the app and find the easiest way to buy tickets, modern technology, making what used to be a total pain in the butt really, really easy. All right, let's get it started with the move in the Western Conference. It's probably the biggest deal, and that is our good friend Ben DeBose, Locked on Rockets. We'll follow it with a look at the Celtics and the Raptors. Our first stop on the moves of the free agency here on Locked on NBA goes to Houston. Ben DuBose is the host of Locked on Rockets. Universally, everybody thinks the Rockets are the team that made the biggest jump here. Ben, do you agree? Generally, yeah. There's still some set issues to be worked out with Chris Paul. You look at a team last year that let James Harden be the primary ball handler where he excels so well. It's not going to be a seamless fit where on day one they're clicking on all cylinders. But long term, if you want to compete with the Warriors, you've got to add as many legit difference makers as you can. And with Chris Paul and James Harden, you've got two of the top five or ten playmakers in the entire NBA. And even if the fit isn't perfect on day one, there's just so much upside there that uh, you can't help but be excited about what they potentially could do once they get a little bit of time to play together. This might be too much of a 30,000-foot overview, but my feeling on the Rockets last year is they were really good with, but when Hart had left the floor, they had a weakness, and then when Patrick Beverly got healthy, that got solved. The second unit got pretty good also. Is that a fair way to look at them last year? And then if that's, let's just start that. Is that a fair way to look at them last year? It is, but it slipped back a little bit once they got to the playoffs. I agree with your characterization during the regular season that it was a weakness very early on. Then when they got Beverly back, even though Beverly was a starter, they were able to kind of configure those minutes in such a way that he left 
about the midpoint of the first quarter, and then early in the second and fourth quarter when Harden was out for those six minutes, they had Beverly essentially running the offense with that second unit in those times that Harden was out, and that helped mitigate the damage uh, of Harden sitting down for 12 minutes a game. And that worked to an extent, but as they got to the playoffs and teams scouted them a little more thoroughly and played them on a night-in, night-out basis, they did start exploiting those Hardenless minutes a little bit more. And to get back to the Chris Paul thing, that's one of the real exciting parts for fans in Houston is that D'Antoni's already said that his plan is for Chris Paul and James Harden for one of those guys to be out there for all 48 minutes of every game. So in theory, it should help you not go through those dry spells they had early in the season, and then they started reappearing in the playoffs as well for the six minutes each half that James Harden sits down. Well, and, and then that that is the key, because that's the next area is going to go. This is where I think a lot of people who question the fit haven't really thought about it. Chris Paul at this stage of his career is not playing more than 32 minutes a night. James mm-hmm. Harden, considering the way he f- fell apart at the end of the year last year, probably shouldn't play more than 32 either. But let's say he plays 36 a night, which is too many, but let's just go with it. Then suddenly, if you think about it, 12 minutes a night, Chris Paul's playing the point guard by himself. Six, 14 or 16 minutes a night, James Harden's playing point guard by himself. They're only on the floor for probably the first six minutes of the first, six minutes of the third, and final six to eight minutes of the game. Yep, I agree. That's close to a third of the time, which is not at all a too small sample. That's close to a third of the time when they're still in their traditional roles, not even having to play together. And I think your point about reducing Harden's usage is so key for this team because obviously there were some fatigue issues by the end of the year. I think that was evident in Game 5 and Game 6 of the San Antonio series. And not just from a 2017-2018 standpoint, but from the bigger picture of maximizing James Harden's prime, that was going to be a problem. I know he's just 27 years old. He's about to turn 28. But he is signed through his age 33 season with the new contract extension he got this weekend. And even though his game isn't super dependent on athleticism, I know he's fairly cerebral. But you still need him to be as fresh as possible. And the workload that he's taken the last two years, especially this last season, I don't think that's sustainable for maximizing his prime and keeping him good, not just for another two or three years, but hopefully having him good into his low to mid-30s the same way that Chris Paul is now. So if you're the Rockets, it's not just about this year. It's about maximizing the next five or so years. And if you want to do that, you've really got to take James Harden's workload down relative to what it's been the last two years. Even if he's able to excel in that role, I don't know if it's in his uh, not in his short-term interest and certainly not in his long-term interest to continue using them the way that uh, Dan Tony did this past season. Let me just be perfectly clear before I start nitpicking. I think this is a – I'm on board. I think they'll be the number two offense in the NBA, uh, particularly if they can divide those minutes. So I think it's terrific. It did not come as painlessly to me as most people are referring Patrick Beverly averaged 31 minutes. Okay, those are Chris Paul's. I got it. Lou Williams averaged 26 minutes in his 23 games. Sam Decker averaged 18 minutes. Monstrell Harrell averaged 18 minutes. That's a lot of that's a lot of filling you got to do. There is. I think the Rockets would argue that Decker and Harrell by the playoffs were not rotation players at all, and Lou Williams, the fit was never there. Now, the thing to keep in mind, I will say that. 
Beverly and Lou, those are two important rotation pieces. The reason the Rockets did the trade, as painful as it was, is that because they did it before free agency, they were able to keep their their full mid-level exception by staying over the cap, and that's directly responsible for them adding P.J. Tucker. So essentially, you have to look at P.J. Tucker as another piece in that trade. And for them to do the trade early, they essentially, well, it was either move those pieces or move either Eric Gordon or Ryan Anderson. Now, if you were to move Eric Gordon or Ryan Anderson, you would have had less in terms of overall players moved in the trade, but I think they see Gordon or Anderson as a little more important individually to what they do. Now, maybe not relative to Beverly, but I think it's pretty clear that the Clippers wanted Beverly as a starting for any of this. But as far as relative to Lou, uh, Decker, Montrez, maybe if you could have moved one of those other guys, but I think the Rockets see Gordon and Ryan as a little more important. And then besides that, if you want to keep Gordon and Anderson, even though even though it's painful to do that move before free agency, at the same time, that's also how you're able to get P.J. Tucker. So hopefully the addition of Tucker, and then they're fairly high on Cho Chi out of China, although he's a little bit of a project. Hopefully we'll some of the gap from just the loss of depth that they certainly gave up in that Clipper trade. Just so I can be on the record for it, I think P.J. Tucker is one of the toughest dudes in the NBA. He's one of the those really special players in which mm-hmm. players are scared of. <laughs> playing yep. and so i but i i'm i don't know his, his, his 22 game sample size in toronto is terrific their defense was was far better so i'm wavering here a little bit their defense was far better when he was on the floor than when he was off the floor uh with them which you know begins to make you believe that maybe he is we're going to find out Let, let's just say this i didn't love him as much in phoenix as everybody else did i know he's been talked about a million times over for the trade mm. The 24 games in Toronto is the only time he's ever played on a good team. He was great from three, shot 40%. He was terrible from two, he shot 41%. I, I, I'm, I'm still curious to see. I'll just say that. Okay? I find that when we fall in love with these players who are on awful teams, mm-hmm. I, I 90% of the time think we make a mistake. That's certainly fair. I would argue that a lot's going to depend on that three-point shot. If he can get it closer to the upper 30s or 40, then that bodes well for him in Houston. And keep in mind, in Houston, what's going to be interesting to watch, I know he's 6'5", 6'6", but you know in D'Antoni's offense, they're primarily going to use him as a small ball four. Now, he will be versatile defensively, and certainly you can see him switch in a way that a lot of even small ball fours aren't able to do. But I think they're sort of penciling him in for that role that uh, Sam Decker had for the first half of last year before he sort of fell out of that rotation. So a lot's going to depend on that three-point shot. But, yeah, if he can hit not even 40, let's just say upper 30s. No, he's a career 35% guy. If he can even get upper 30s as a small ball four uh I, I think he can fit pretty well. And as you said, the toughness, it's one of those little acute things. I know it's hard to measure, but that's one thing that you could question if the Rockets had enough of, that nasty streak outside of Nene. I don't know if they had that. That's just one of those intangibles, that bulldog thing, that especially in the absence of Pat Beverly, I think could suit them very well just from a character standpoint. Final question for Ben DeBose, Locked on Rockets. Carmelo Anthony is on the Rockets on opening day. And if yes, does it make them better? Yes and yes. I don't feel 100% confident in that because, as I'm told right now, there's nothing imminent. The Knicks are certainly looking for younger picks and pieces or cap space, which the Rockets can't do 
any of those because, well, they're younger assets they can compile. They've given up in the, the moves that they've already made. So if the Rockets are able to move for Carmelo, then it's probably going to involve Ryan Anderson, which doesn't really fit what the Knicks need. They're probably going to have to bring in a third team. But I just can't figure out a way that it doesn't get done because I can't see the Knicks bringing Carmelo all the way to the regular season in that environment. I think they're ready to move on. And because of that no-trade clause, it seems Houston and Cleveland are the only teams on the market. And unless Cleveland wants to move Kevin Love, which I see highly, highly unlikely if they move Kevin Love for Carmelo, I just don't see what the fit is there, not from a deal with the Knicks and also not from a roster standpoint. So Houston makes the most sense. And assuming the only major piece Houston gives up is Ryan Anderson, now I'm assuming they would have to give up more than that in terms of assets, but we're talking you know, mid-level prospects, future picks. If Ryan Anderson is the only rotation piece that goes out in a deal, then yes, to me, Carmelo makes them better. I know there's an ego to be blended in there, and it's not a perfect fit, but I think him playing alongside Chris Paul and James Harden, two friends he respects, I think that helps. And beyond that, he's a better catch-and-shoot player than he gets credit for so at a bare minimum, I think he gives you similar catch-and-shoot ability to Ryan Anderson along with a lot more playmaking and athleticism. And that's, you know, even if the fit isn't perfect. And if the fit is better, well, it gives you a lot more in terms of playmaking, athleticism, and you know, an ability to create his own offense, which is something outside of James Harden the Rockets sorely lacked last year. So it's one of those things I don't feel great about it from the standpoint of it getting done just because I don't think anything's close right now. And on paper, I don't see a great match between the Rockets and the Knicks. But eventually, it might be August, it might be September, I feel pretty confident that it gets done just because with the no-trade clause and Carmelo's known preferences, I just don't really see a fit anywhere else for him. I also really can't imagine him going to training camp in that environment in New York. So it's one of those things, awkward fit, I can't see that working out for Carmelo anywhere else either. So I'll say sure in Houston. Ben DuBose does a great job at Locked on Rockets. Make sure you catch it, local stories or biggest stories with local angles on the Locked On Podcast Network. Ben, thank you very much. Thank you, David. Switch it over to the Eastern Conference now and joined by the host or one of the hosts of Locked On Celtics, John Corrales. He's also joined by Sam Packard and Jay King. Throughout the time, they've done great work on Locked On Celtics and had many of the biggest stories coming up. The vision, John, when the – offseason started was Jimmy Butler and Gordon Hayward, Paul George and Gordon Hayward, Jimmy Butler and Paul George, some combination of stars. It didn't happen, yet you still got Gordon Hayward. Is it enough for Celtic fans? Uh, It's enough for right now. I think everybody understands that we need more. Uh, I think if we had gotten Butler, if we had gotten George and we got Hayward, then everybody would have been like, here we go, on to the finals and trying to figure out how we match up with the Warriors. Right now, I think we understand we're in a position in Boston to take advantage if Cleveland falls apart or if Kevin Durant gets hurt or something like that. We need kind of a little extra help, but it does put the Celtics in that next level right below. So the Celtics, the Raptors, whomever, are going to fight for the right to go up and give Cleveland one heck of a series because I think now, as currently constituted, the Celtics can go up against the the Cavaliers and make that series respectable and maybe, maybe take a seven-game series. They've addressed a bunch of the issues, a bunch of the things that hurt them, and if, for, if somehow they can keep LeBron in check, we're looking at a, at a team that, that could give them a good series. Let's go backwards first. Do you think in any way 
that the Celtics missed the boat and should have Jimmy Butler or should have Paul George right now? You know, no. They, they did miss the boat in some respects, and I can see why people say that, but they can't control what Chicago did. They can't control what Indiana did. It's not their fault that those teams didn't wait two weeks, and I don't understand why those teams didn't wait two weeks because if you look at Indiana specifically, if they had just waited to see if uh, the Celtics had gotten Gordon Hayward, think about how motivated the Celtics would have been to move Avery Bradley and other assets Paul George. They, the Indiana could have gotten a lot more in terms of maybe draft picks, players. They're clearly not tanking. They're clearly trying to stay somewhat relevant. They could have probably gotten both Bradley and Jay Crowder and future picks. And so I feel like it's their impatience. They're the ones that drop the ball. And if I was a Pacers fan, I'd be a little upset that Pritchard kind of jumped the gun. So yeah, I guess you can say that that Ainge maybe should have realized that they were so impatient. He should have just made made the leap, but you, you can't really predict the future like that. And and so I feel like getting Hayward was the priority, and everyone else kind of had to wait. And if they didn't want to wait, that's their own fault. And really, honestly, I think both Chicago and Indiana are both worse for not being patient. All right, so let me play a game with you here, John, because I in my twenty. 20- Way too many years, 25 years in the NBA. <laughs> I've actually come up with, and particularly because I had the unique experience of starting as a talk show host and then basically moving so that I'm embedded in a team at this point and have been for much of my last 10 years of my career. What I've learned is that no one's an idiot. That's kind of my general rule now. Um, I mean, even if you think about like the most idiotic move, like when Chris Wallace traded Paul Gasol and everyone, the, he got Marcus Gasol. Like it was an incredible deal for Memphis, right? So I always feel like no one's quite the idiot that we in the media try to make them. So if I'm, are you really, are you going to use that to explain the Tim Hardaway signing? Um, so the Knicks could be an exception <laughs> to all rules. No, I honestly think actually, so a little bit to this point, actually, John, here's what I would say. When when a front office does something that makes no sense, then I go look to the ownership. Absolutely. Right? Okay. So like, okay, wait a sec. No one's an idiot. So there's so I know enough about Indiana ownership, by the way, that they're not pushing they're not pushing a deal through. Like they're not making a deal happen. That's not who they are. So the only scenario I've come up with because I'm I'm walking through this. Like, why would Kevin Pritchard possibly take Victor Oladipo? And Sabonis, who, even if the Celtics didn't get, so let's say the Celtics didn't get Gordon Hayward, then I would think the Celtics actually might give up more for Paul George, right? Because they're desperate at that point. If they did get him, you just outlined what they had to do. So the only scenario I've come up with, tell me if you think I'm crazy, is that somehow getting Paul George didn't help them get Gordon Hayward and that the Celtics had actually pulled out of the marketplace for Paul George. And there are reports that when called, Danny Ainge never made a counteroffer at that point. Do you think there's any chance that if getting Paul George for one year under that circumstance was not a bonus to Gordon Hayward and that part of the reason that Kevin Pritchard made his move was because the Celtics had actually pulled out of that market and were pretty confident they were getting Gordon Hayward. I would say it's possible, and having not been privy to those conversations, I can't say yes or no, 
but it's it's possible. I think for some reason, whatever reason, Indiana had to felt like they had to make a move at that time, and they didn't want to wait. Maybe they felt like making that move then helped them set their cap, figure out the direction they were going, and then they could start signing free agents right away. And they didn't want to play the game of waiting for Gordon Hayward and being held hostage by the Celtics. So I, I really do think in all of the things that I've seen, Danny Ainge was talking about signing or getting two guys. Uh, even Amir Johnson, who was talking here at Summer League uh, a couple of days ago, said that Danny Ainge was really honest with me. And he was telling me, we're trying to get two free agents. And if we get both, you're gone and everything. So he even in passing confirmed that Danny Ainge was trying to add two guys. And there's no doubt that Paul George, to me, I think he was one of those guys. But Indiana, I think, moved on. Really, honestly, I feel like Indiana decided that they liked Oladipo. They liked Sabonis. And they didn't want to sit there for two, three weeks, however long. They didn't know how long Gordon Hayward was going to take to make his decision. And they didn't want to sit here and be in the middle of July, missing the boat on free agents and whatever, waiting for Gordon Hayward and that domino to fall. So they made the move when they feel, felt like they had to move. I think this thing happened faster than they wanted it to or expected it to. And I, I, I think that Ainge – now, Ainge may have been lowballing them, or Ainge may not have gone back to them with a counteroffer because he was waiting to see exactly how much he would have to give up. And you know Ainge, he's not going to give up more than he has to. So he wanted to. He knew that Hayward was going to be the guy, and he wanted to see exactly what the situation was, exactly what the market was before he came back with a counteroffer, giving up more than he thought, or or screwing up something that that could have messed with the the, the Hayward signing. So I, I feel like. Ainge was being more patient or Ainge was waiting, playing a different game, a different pace than Indiana was comfortable. So they made a move so they could move forward with their own stuff. It's an interesting, we'll never know, right? It's just, we'll never know. I always, Cause everybody's going to come out and spin it now. Right. I always try to just piece together. I assume Intel, particularly a guy like Kevin Pritchard, right? He's been a GM in the league. He's been around the league for 30 years. Like he's done great things in his career. He's not, you know, he, I mean, signing maybe, you know, max contract to Brandon Roy when you know his knee's bad is not a great move, but th- there's always a reason for it. He's not a bad GM. So I-, I think it's an interesting, I don't know. I've just tried to figure out this whole time. Anytime everybody's saying, like, I can't believe he did it, I always try to believe uh, that there's a reason he did, and so then my job is to figure out what it might be. Let's move forward. With Gordon Hayward, what is your starting five on opening day? Man, we just had this conversation on our last Locked On Celtics show. So, and, and if you listen to that, we're, we're still kind of figuring that out. I have landed on Marcus Smart starting alongside Isaiah Thomas with Hayward, Crowder, and Al Horford. And that, I, I say that because Smart, I feel like, would be better defending the opposing team's point guard. And that's kind of, when you think about defensively, you you need somebody alongside Isaiah to guard the other team's point guard. Now they are playing Jalen on other teams' point guards out here in summer. They are trying to get him defensive minutes against ones and twos just to see if they, if he can handle that load. And and maybe that's a direction they go. That's the other option starting Jalen Brown at two. Cause he, and he also last season, if you look at the numbers, Jalen Brown as a starter, much better last year 
than Jalen Brown as a sub. And, and that may change moving forward, but he, he definitely benefits from playing alongside better players. But I think you can start Marcus Smart, and then you can stagger minutes. You get, you get an opportunity to sub Isaiah out like at the six-minute mark, get him a quick burst of, of minutes, and then sit him out, and then you can bring him back in at the end of the first quarter, get him a little bit more rest uh, in the quarter break, and bring him out to start the second quarter, and then you start to stagger him and Marcus Smart that way. That, to me, makes the most sense right now. But, you know, stiff breeze could change my mind. It, it's still all in flux. How good is this team? Ah, man, this team's going to be a lot of fun. They addressed a lot of things that they had problems with. The Aaron Bain signing is low-key, really important, because they didn't have that tough, low-post, bruising guy. The guy, when Tristan Thompson is killing you, you can throw out there, and he can bang against Thompson, and he's not afraid to box him out. That's important. And, yeah, they lost Avery Bradley. Yeah, they lost Kelly Olynyk. But, obviously, Gordon Hayward is a superstar, and Mark, Marcus Morris is is a pretty good a replacement for Olenek. Not quite the three-point shooter, but much more versatile and a better uh, on-ball defender. So they address a few different things. This team is going to be really, really good. They're going to be really good. They're going to be a 55-60 to 60 win team, especially in the East. They could win 60 games in the East, no problem. They might win more games than the Cavaliers because the Cavaliers, again, could coast, and they're, they're going to be playing that San Antonio Spurs game rest guys, kind of keep it in check until the playoffs and turn it on in the playoffs. So the Celtics could go out and definitely go and, and take the top seed when you think of those two things combined. And then I see them going to the conference finals again, and that matchup, if they face the Cavaliers again, that's not going to be a gimme for Cleveland. That's going to be a tough, tough series. I'm not ready to say they're going to beat the Cavaliers. I'm not ready to put them in that class yet, but they're going to give the Cavaliers a series. It's interesting. I have one really random, weird question because I'm a stats guy. Why were the Celtics so much better when Amir Johnson was on the floor? And is that a much – if Baines is a subtle addition, which I agree, and by the way, I also really like the addition of Marcus Morris, uh, is the Amir Johnson loss a little bigger than anyone realizes? Yeah, Amir was low-key. Like he, he was kind of an important guy last year. That's going to that's gonna sting a little bit. Uh, he was a guy who defended the rim, definitely – it's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt not having that guy there. Playing Al Horford at the five is going to be a step down defensively because he's not going to be blocking shots. He's not going to be down low, challenging guys. That's not the game he plays. So this Celtics team is going to be definitely a little bit different. You're going to see a more fast pace. They're going to they're gonna be playing and scoring a lot more baskets. They're going to be taking a lot more shots. Uh, without the numbers in front of me, I want to say they probably took like somewhere in the low 80s as far as field goal attempts, they they could pump that up to like over ninety. They're not going to be they're not going to be uh, setting any shot blocking records out there, but they're going to they're going to win and defend in a different way. So Amir Johnson definitely hurts, but they're going to have to adjust their style of play. And I think they're definitely moving to that more fluid, positionless style of basketball where you know Baines is a good stopgap against certain teams, but you wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if Baines gets some DNPs against more athletic teams. If, if you might miss some games because that's the style Celtics is going to play, and they're going to throw him out there when he needs when they need him. So, again, Amir hurts in, in some ways, but I think the Celtics have adjusted their, their style of play where you can even see in the playoffs they were starting to kind of phase him out anyway. 
It's a great point. It's a different team. Like, you can't put all the pieces back together in the same puzzle. It's a different puzzle. Brad's shown the ability. Brad Stevens shown the ability to do that. It'll be very interesting to see. They should be terrific. John Corrales is the host of Locked on Celtics. It's a highly entertaining, really fun show and very informative. John, thanks very much for joining us on Locked on NBA. You got it. Staying in the Eastern Conference, one of the most interesting quandaries, rocking hard places, I don't know what it was, was the Toronto Raptors. Was Masai Ujiri going to go young and move on? Was Were the Rockets going to just keep knocking on the door? What was the plan? And now we've seen it, and Sean Woodley of Lockdown Raptors joins us. And, Sean, let's go kind of back to was there a tipping point that pushed the Rockets one way or another? I mean, Kyle Lowry had a bunch of calls and meetings set up with other teams. I know that for a fact. Um, there was a feeling that there was a chance they were going to let Kyle Lowry go. Um, there was a chance they were going to let Serge Ibaka go. What was the tipping point in your mind that pushed the Raptors back toward basically bringing the gang back together? I think it was probably just seeing a couple things. I guess, first of all, it was the market for point guards that kind of evaporated pretty quickly with all the teams that needed point guards. I mean, the Rockets ended up with Chris Paul. The Wolves, for some reason, decided Jeff Teague was the answer to their problems, so they brought him in uh, pretty quickly to like the first contract announced at the start of free agency. Uh, obviously, Markel Fultz ended up on the Sixers, and all the you know fake destinations that were just going to be used for leverage and all the actual real threats, at least in my mind, uh, all kind of you know got their point guard situations figured out pretty quickly and early on in the, in, the, in the process. And the market itself wasn't that robust. I mean, Jeff Teague was getting under twenty million bucks a year. George Hill couldn't find a contract for very, for a long time. So I think the the price for Lowry probably came down a little bit. I think the five years kind of came off the table pretty quickly, if that was ever something that was even involved in the Raptors' minds going into the offseason. I don't really think it was. But, you know, it became pretty clear that five years was going to be tough for him to get, and three years was probably more likely just considering the deals were handed out. Um, so I think that's probably what happened. And I also think the way the Eastern Conference just kind of you know, crumbled in the in the late part of June, early July, where like three playoff teams from last year now, the Hawks, the Pacers, and the Bulls, they all look like they're going to be lottery teams now. And tanking is really hard, and it becomes a lot harder when there are a bunch of teams trying to do the same thing and a bunch of teams that are probably going to be better at being bad than you when you have a guy like Masai Ujiri who's really good at his job when you already have a stock of young guys on the roster. Like there wasn't really a quick pivot point for the Raptors to become really bad really quickly. You know, DeMar DeRozan, he's a pretty good player who I think a lot of teams would want in the right situation, but offloading him in the middle of the offseason is pretty hard because, you know, you'd have to find a team that really needs a guy of his skill set. There aren't many teams out there, and it, 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 it would take some time, I think, to facilitate a move to get rid of DeMar DeRozan, too. So, like, the Raptors were never going to be able to get bad quickly, and the Eastern Conference was just too full of bad teams. And I think, you know, looking at how the Eastern Conference played out, yes, Boston got Gordon Hayward, but they also sacrificed some of their depth to do it. Um, and I think, you know, you can reasonably pencil in Toronto for still over 50 wins. And that's, you know, really valuable, especially for a team that before the last four years never had any sort of success. So I think all the different market factors and the fact that the Eastern Conference looks pretty bad and it might be a window here for the next couple of years for the Raptors to compete. I think that all kind of weighed into bringing back Serge Ibaka and Kyle Lowry. The comment going into the offseason is there had to be a cultural change. I don't remember Masai's exact statement, but it was basically there has to be a cultural change. When you have basically the same roster back with minor variations, what does that mean? Yeah, I, honestly, I think that one little nugget, I mean, that was a 41-minute press conference, and the words culture reset are the only ones that people mentioned from there. 
Um, and I think people really sort of fixated on those, probably unfairly, because, you know, again, 41 minutes of press conference, there was a lot of other context in there. I think mostly it has to do with the way that the Raptors are going to play. And I'm not sure exactly how they're going to change it, because, you know, the thing is, the Raptors have gotten to where they are because they play a brand of basketball that suits DeMar DeRozan and Kyle Lowry's strength. I mean, I think Lowry could probably fit into any offense, but DeRozan, you know, the driving kick heavy offense the Raptors run where they run a lot of pick and roll, but it's not really pick and roll designed to get, you know, open three-point shots. It's pick and roll designed to get DeMar DeRozan going to the basket by himself, trying to get a shot or, or, or look at the rim. Um, you know, that's, you know, it's not the most elegant what play, you know, style of basketball that we see today in the NBA, but it, it works for DeRozan, and he's become a really good player because of it. And the Raptors have had a top five offense for the last five, four years or so, or top five, top ten at least, top top five last year. And they were number one for the longest part of last year, too, and you know, up until the end of the new year. Um, so the offense has always worked. It's the playoffs where it kind of falls off a cliff, and that's where the culture reset things comes in. I think it's more of a, of a play style reset more than a culture reset. And I, I think they're probably going to try to work at it. I mean, Nick Nurse, who's the lead offensive assistant for the Raptors, um, he's kind of been one of those highly touted assistants for the last couple of years. Appeared, I think, in Kevin Arnovitz's uh, piece last year for ESPN, looking at the next big coaching prospects. Like, Nick Nurse has an elaborate playbook. He's a great offensive mind. The Raptors don't tend to use all of it. I feel like they're probably going to bust out that puppy a little bit more this year and try to incorporate some more, you know, different offensive schemes and things like that and different, you know, ball movement tactics. And maybe, you know, the fact that DeLon right now is in there to be the backup point guard, he's more of a, a natural playmaker than Corey Joseph was. Maybe there's just more playmaking on the team now. It's hard to say because the Raptors have been really good when they've, you know, you know, executed their offensive system for the last four years. Um, but I'm curious to see if they're going to sort of expand upon what they already know. And I think they'll keep some of the fundamentals the same, but I think they'll try to expand and incorporate some more things as well. Serge Ibaka played 23 games for the Raptors last year. At the time of the trade, it felt awesome. Watching it, it felt, uh, n- numerically, you were much better when he was off the floor than on the floor. What's your feeling on what a season-long training camp prepared Serge Ibaka at the four Raptors team means? I kind of disagree that when you say that it was kind of uh because I, I like I mean the Raptors weren't really whole when the, in the, at, the, at the end of the regular season where they didn't have Kyle Lowry there. Like we don't know really what Kyle Lowry, Serge Ibaka, and Demar Derozan as a core looks like together. First of all. Uh, but I, th- I thought Ibaka was really nice for the Raptors down the stretch. He was a good secondary offensive option. He was like the only three-point shooter on the team at that point with Lowry out of the, out of the lineup and Terrence Ross having been traded. And he was really re- reliable for that. And I think if you look at the playoffs, I mean, DeMar DeRozan had a massive game six against the Bucks, But you know, before that, you could argue that Serge Ibaka was the best Raptor in that series. His rim protection numbers were fantastic. I think there was something like 37%. He had like three or four massive blocks on Giannis, of all people, at the rim. Um, like he was really good for the Raptors in that series. And yes, there are some issues, you know, the second night of back to back, he looked not great. I would say, you know, the, he, there's a little bit, uh, you can, you can obviously see there's less sort of jump in his step on the second night of a back to back. And I'm sure that some of the Raptors are going to manage this season. Um, but like overall, I think, I think what became clear down the rest that down the stretch of the season last year is that Serge Ibaka is a center and he's going to have to close games at center, play most of his minutes at center. Maybe the Raptors are, you know, I think Jonas Valanciunas is going to be on the team next year, but I think if you have Serge Ibaka closing games at center, playing 20-something minutes at center as the true backup center for the Raptors, I think that's probably going to be the best for him and the best for the Raptors. He wasn't great paired with Jonas Valanciunas, and I think that's probably where a lot of those bad numbers come in. 
Uh, it just never really worked. You know, Valanciunas is a really hard player to play with because he has a lot of defensive issues and his pick and roll defense is absolutely atrocious at times. And I think Ibaka's best when he's near the rim. We saw last year he's not as quick as he used to be. He can't really guard guys on the perimeter at the four. But I think if he's at the five, he's going to be a really good pick and roll defender for you and be near the rim where you want him. And he can actually sort of do what he does best. And I think the Raptors are going to probably try to do that a little bit more next year. Great perspective. That's why we take the local angle on the big stories. We get perspective like that. All right. There are two other swaps by the Raptors. One is they, uh, DeLon Wright will replace Corey Joseph at backup point guard, which is probably important since Kyle Lowry missed 22 games last year. Step back, step forward, or about the same. I think I think right now it's hard to say exactly how it's going to start out. I think you know there's a chance that DeLon is a little bit less than what Corey Joseph was on a day-to-day basis right from the jump. I mean, Corey Joseph was about as steady a backup point guard as you could possibly ask for. Uh, he improved his three-point shooting last year as well, got up to, I think, 35%. Uh, which isn't great, but much better than where it used to be and much better than where DeLon Wright is at right now. But I do think Wright has much higher upside. I think his defensive potential is, you know, really impressive. It's, I think it's the thing I'm most excited about with him. I mean, last season you saw just some crazy blocks from the point guard spots. You know, he's got a real knack for the ball. He can poke steals away. And he looks like he's going to be a really good defender at six foot five for that position. And I'm really excited to see how he flourishes there. Um, and in terms of his playmaking, I mean, Corey Joseph, as I kind of alluded to, he's more of a headline like driver to the rim. Wasn't really a good driving kick guy. Like he, when he was going to the basket, he was very Norm Powell like in that he was going to the basket to try to score and not do much else. And he was pretty good at it. Like he had some nice finish, those corkscrew layups, or something that I think Raptors fans are really going to miss. But Delon Wright is by every you know by every sense of the you know in every sense of the word he's a playmaker and he gets into the defense. He's herky jerky and weird and really hard to guard. He's big uh, and he can kind of pass over defenses. And I think that is going to be a really nice piece of. Uh, you know, creation for the Raptors that they didn't really have last season with Corey Joseph. And I do think that, you know, eventually the finishing will come. He was not a very good finisher last year. He would get really apprehensive around the rim and his three-point shot's not there. But, you know, that's something I think the Raptors have, you know, shown that they're okay with working with guys on and, you know, trying to turn that into a strength out of a weakness over the course of time. And I think Norm Powell's a sort of a mini success story there, although it still remains to be seen how Norm Powell's going to turn out. But I do think DeLon Wright, even if his shooting never comes, I think he can be a much higher upside play than Corey Joseph was last year. And Corey Joseph, again, was one of the best backup point guards in the league. So I'm pretty high on DeLon Wright for sure. C.J. Miles better than Damari Carroll? I think so at this point. And it pains me to say because, man, and I mean, you're in Utah. You probably dealt with Damari Carroll when he was there. I mean, just there aren't many better guys in the league than Damari Carroll. And I feel bad for him that things didn't work out in Toronto. And I do believe... He's going to have a better season next year in Brooklyn than he had at any point in Toronto. I just think health is going to be on his side, and I think it's probably going to work out for him, and I hope it does because Damari's a great guy. But I do think C.J. Miles just fits better. Um, you know, Last season, I think he was third in the league and, and made corner threes. I think he came ninth in terms of total you know, a, a percentage of three-point – or percentage of shots that came from the three-point line, and like that is just really big for the Raptors because they didn't have any three-point shooting down the stretch to speak of, really, especially with Kyle Lowry out. It became a real issue. And, you know, C.J. Miles is now instantly like the second best shooter on the team. And if you have a lineup out there with Lowry, Miles, and Serge Ibaka, like those are three, you know, near 40% three-point shooters that, you know, that's really hard to deal with. And that kind of, you know, offsets having a guy like DeMar DeRozan on the floor as well. It gives, you know, him options to throw the ball to if he's, you know, facing extra defensive attention. I think C.J. Miles is going to be really good. And you look at the Raptors roster now, too, and I think, 
you can probably say that Miles is a better defender than Carroll was last year. I mean, Carroll just, he, I think he had moments, but really you saw in the playoffs, especially against a guy like Giannis, he just wasn't cut out to guard bigger wings. And I'm not sure Miles is, you know, a lockdown wing defender at this point to get like the bigger wings in the Eastern Conference. But, you know, all those bigger wings are in the West now anyway, so who cares? Um, but I, I do think, you know, you look at the Raptors roster now and with Miles, like they're outside of Valanciunas and DeMar DeRozan, there's not really a bad defender in the entire bunch. Like some guys have up and downs, like, you know, I think Abaka, you know, when he's on the perimeter is not so good. I think a guy like Lowry kind of goes in spurts and he'll have a bad couple of games here and there, but overall he's pretty solid and his metrics are, his metrics are great on that end. So I don't think there's any bad defenders on the team. And I think Miles just helps that. I think he's just a perfect fit. He's going to be a nice low usage guy to stand in the corner and hit a bunch of threes. And I think the Raptors desperately need a guy like that. Well, CJ's as good a guy as Damari, by the way. I know them both well. Fantastic. So you're, you're Excellent. In good shape. The final quick thing. Raptors rank where in the East right now? I think they're third right now. I think people are getting a little – I would put them closer to Boston than Boston is to Cleveland, if that makes any sense. Like, I don't think it's a clear, you know, one-team second tier with Boston. I think Boston's very much in that conversation with Toronto, Milwaukee, and Washington. Um, I, if I had to guess, I would say the Raptors probably don't go all out this season for, you know, a crazy win total. And if I'm looking at this three-year run for the Raptors, I think the second year, you know, 2018-19, with another year for these young guys to develop, I think that's the year where the Raptors are going to be at their best. You know, they've locked in this three-year window now with the three-year deals they've handed out to all their free agents. And I think, you know, it's a really nice sort of timeline to have. And if this year, you know, takes a year a year for Jakob Pertl or OG Ananobi to really round into form, I think that's fine. I think the Raptors can take a year where maybe they win 50 games and they you know, lose in the second round or whatever. And I think they're fine with that because there's a couple more years after that to really hit their stride and really take advantage of having this roster with Lowry, DeRozan, and Ibaka, and then having all these young guys at the end of the bench eventually hit. So I think that's where I'm at. I think they'll be probably the third or fourth best team in the East this year, but the potential to be better in the, in the 2018-19 season. And I'm okay with that. And I think the Raptors are very okay with that too, because the alternative is being, you know, the Bulls or the Pacers or the Hawks, which aren't going to be fun teams to watch this season. So I'm excited. I think the Raptors are going to be fun. I think there are more moves to make, too. I think they have, like, I think it's like $3 million bucks right now to sort of get a move in underneath the tax they can use their MLE on. Um, I'm not sure who that's going to be. And I think they can move a little bit more money around if they want to lose, move, like, Lucas Noguera, for example, to, you know, free up a bit more money to make a bigger offer to someone like Jonas Jerebko or someone like that. I think there's a move out there. I think they'll still do something to fill up the roster to get another winger or four in there. And I think that's going to help them. But I do think it's going to be hard to come up, you know, exactly to match Boston with talent, or they're not going to match Cleveland, for example. But I do think they're probably the third best team right now with a chance to potentially go to a conference finals again. He's Sean Woodley, host Locked On Raptors, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. This has been a look at the big moves of the offseason, the local angles on the big national stories with Locked On Celtics, Locked On Rockets, and now Locked On Raptors. Remember, the show is brought to you by SeatGeek today. $20 rebate on your first purchase from SeatGeek if you lose, use the promo code L-O-N-B-A. Have you subscribed to your favorite NBA team's local daily podcast? If not, please do it. Locked on NBA is also now available for you on Spotify. So make sure you grab it there. This has been Locked on NBA, part of the Locked on Podcast Network.
It's fall at JCPenney. Time to refresh your closet. This Thursday through Monday, get Levi's lowest prices of the season on 514 straight fit jeans for guys, $36.99. And select Arizona booties for her for $35.99. Plus, save an additional 50% off clearance prices already reduced by 60 to 80%. And get an extra $10 off with your coupon. Hurry in now. JCPenney. From valid 10, 5 to 10, 9. Levi's and other brands excluded from coupon. Clearance elections vary by store while supplies last. Savings off regular and original prices. Intermediate markdowns may have been taken. See store or jcp.com for details. Season refers to 927 to 1018.